book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you'll find that passage of Scripture, we're going to actually begin by reading that. You'll find 1 Timothy right after um, the book to the Thessalonians, uh, the small epistles that are part of the New Testament, um, almost towards the end of your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 12 through chapter 5, verse 2. Follow along in God's word as I read. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch. Watch, Timothy, your life and doctrine closely. Persevere. In them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Uh, We're thinking these days together about what the Bible says about singleness. And I want to begin by asking you a question. What is the worst day of the year to be single? What is the worst day of the year to be single? I heard several people say automatically something, Valentine's Day. Maybe. Uh, It's the romantic holiday, isn't it? We just passed Valentine's Day. Uh, Maybe it was a day that you didn't exchange cards or flowers or candy with someone else. Uh, Maybe if you were to get out your, your calendar book from 2009 and you were to look at it, you would say that the worst day to be married, to be single that day, was the date of your best friend's wedding. Uh, You were a bridesmaid. Again, Sabrina Beasley wrote an article for Family Life Today where she talked about the year, uh, a two-year period of time when five of her roommates got married. She was in three weddings that year, and she went home from each of those celebrations of marital bliss, hung her very expensive dress next to the other expensive dresses she'd never wear again, and went to bed alone. David Paulison once wrote about a man who would say that Friday, no matter what uh, year or no matter what week, that Friday is the worst day to be single. Friday is the day that this young man, Paulison writes about, believes that every married man he knows is home, surrounded by his loving wife and children, and every single guy he knows, except for him, is out with friends or a girlfriend. Friday is the worst. It's the end of the week, end of the work week, and there's no one there to, to celebrate it with you. What is the worst day of the year to be single? I find myself leaning towards those who say that Christmas is the worst day of the year to be single. 
I think about this with me from a couple of different angles. Uh, One writer was invited to her sister's house on Christmas Eve. She spent the night there and woke up the next morning to watch her nieces and nephews open presents. Uh, nobody Nobody knows how to celebrate Christmas like children, right? Every present is the best gift ever. Uh, She watched her sister, she watched her brother-in-law exchange these little sweet tokens of love that they'd purchased for each other, and she sat on the couch without any children of her own to watch open presents, and no boyfriend or husband to find that perfect gift for her. Carolyn McCulley writes about Christmas from a different angle. Uh, For years, as she was growing up, her aunt and uncle always came over to their house for Christmas to watch her and her siblings open presents. And after years and years of this, uh, one fall, her aunt died. And that next Christmas morning, they were sitting around and they were adoring Carolyn's niece, newborn baby niece. And their uncle, a stoic man, a World War II veteran, just burst into tears in the living room He said, it's my first Christmas without her. I miss her so much. Who wants to sleep alone on Christmas night or wake up Christmas morning to a silent house? You you can see this morning that I am tying the worst day to be single, uh, to be a single adult, to the issue of loneliness. What does loneliness feel like? How, how would you describe loneliness as, a, as, a, as an emotion? Uh, maybe you would use words like pain or grief or sorrow. Neurologists who study the brain have discovered on MRI machines that the part of your brain that responds to physical pain lights up the exact same way when you are rejected by somebody else. Loneliness hurts. Maybe you could describe loneliness as, the, as being bottled up. You have things you want to say, things you want to share, things you want to express, uh, someone to understand, and it just seems like there's no one there to answer or respond to you or care even what you might say. Uh, I have mentioned it before, but it sticks in my mind uh, the, the time that Lois Johnson described to me what life in her home was like after her husband Paul died. She said, I have started so many conversations with Paul uh, before I realize that he's not there to answer. I I find an article that he might want to read or hear something on the radio, but he's not there to listen. He's not there for me to pass along the, the information to. Some of you still talk to your departed spouse, don't you? Maybe loneliness could be, could be described as, as skin hunger. I heard that phrase this week. When I visit some of our senior, citizen, uh, senior citizens in retirement communities, I sometimes walk the halls of the, the sections that are set aside for the, the residents who need the highest level of care. There they are, uh, these uh, men and women, many of them widows, widowers, incapacitated in various ways. And I wonder how long it's been since someone has hugged them. They get touched all the time. Somebody helps them get dressed. Somebody helps them bathe. But, but does someone ever wrap them in a warm embrace and pour into their arms all of the affection that love includes? Maybe you could describe loneliness as skin hunger. 
We're talking together about, about singleness. We started a couple weeks ago uh, talking about the unique calling and privilege uh, that, uh, of being a single adult. 1 Corinthians 7 challenges you to model to the church undivided loyalty to Christ, to be a pace setter in our congregation for single-minded pursuit of, of Him. Uh, last week, we talked about the issue of contentment. How do you trust God? How do you follow God when your desires go unfulfilled? Today we're going to talk together about singleness and loneliness. Last night of the adults in America who ate dinner, 22% of them ate alone. Uh, Singleness is the doorway through which we're going to talk about loneliness today. You need to recognize and you know that everyone struggles with loneliness, whether you're married or not. How how did you feel the first time you realized after you got married that you felt lonely? Here's how I want to proceed this morning, what I want to do. First, I want to give you a biblical perspective on loneliness. Then I want to give you a biblical response to loneliness. Basically, I'm going to ask and answer these questions. Where does loneliness come from? And how do I respond to loneliness? Those two things. Where does it come from? How do I respond? I don't have a specific text that we're going to consider in detail. I'm going to refer to several of them. But I want to start together with you in the first two, page, uh, first two chapters of Genesis. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I want to look in these first chapters, which are so foundational for what it means to be a, a human being, and I want to talk to you about uh, where loneliness comes from or uh, get a biblical perspective on loneliness. In fact, I want you to see two things in this text here as we go through it. Uh, some of you may already know where I'm going in the, in the passage. You're familiar enough with these verses, but let's, let's uh, go together, shall we? Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of God making the earth, making the heavens and the earth, a story of creation. And there's a refrain all the way through chapter 1. At the end of every day, God looks at what he sees and he says, it is good. Everything he sees, it is good. After six days, he was so pleased in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God was satisfied with what he made. He took delight in what he made. It, it, it fulfilled him and, and brought him joy. Chapter 2 gives a little bit more detail about day 6. Chapter 2 is a review of day 6. In between the good of day 5 and the very good at the end of day 6, there was a not good in there. A not good declaration that, that God makes in verse 18. Look what it says. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. Where does loneliness come from? Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Human beings were not created to be solitary. Human beings were not created to be solitary. Here we have in Genesis 1 and 2 a perfect man in a perfect place. He has a perfect relationship with God. And God's assessment is that it is not good for him to be alone. I want you to see that in the text because sometimes we tend to spiritualize independence. We act as if, as if the way to deal with, the, uh, with lonely feelings is to stifle them under a veneer of spirituality. 
as if, as if, I, as if I were more spiritual, if I trusted Christ more, or if I was a more godly person or a more mature believer, I wouldn't have these feelings of loneliness because loneliness is for unspiritual people. Uh, but we have here a perfect man in a perfect place who has a perfect relationship with God, and God's own assessment is it is not good for him to be alone. The president of Cedarville uh, College, when I was there, a fine, fine man, he had a favorite hymn that we would sing at the end of his uh, service, at the end of uh, his chapel times when he would preach. Uh, and the, the song was called Christ is All I Need. We sang it a lot. It was an old gospel song. I'd never heard it before until I got there. Uh, here are the lines. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. He's all I need. For me, he died. He was crucified. He's all I need. And the emphasis of the song, I think, is on the fact that we bring nothing in and of ourselves before God. When you cross the threshold of heaven, it will be because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that you have done. In that sense, it is true. Christ is all you need. But we used to sing that song a little bit differently. We used to sing it as if it were a triumph of spiritual independence. Christ is all I need, and I don't need anyone or anything else. He's all I need in this world. And I used to stand there, and and we would sing this song, and it was very moving following an excellent message. And I used to think, if that's true, if Christ is all I need, why do I feel so alone? Why am I so lonely? Uh, my, my first year of college, I, I mentioned this before, I, I think, was, was difficult for me. Looking, looking back on the experience, there were things I really missed about my life. I didn't even realize that I missed them. I missed interacting with people outside of my own age bracket. You live in a college dorm. Everybody you see every day is between the years of 18 and 22. There's no little kids and no senior citizens, and I miss that about life. Uh, There was no one at the church that I attended in college who knew who I was. None of my old Sunday school teachers were there. None of those embarrassing older women who would come up and say, I remember changing you in the nursery. They weren't at the church that I went to in college. They didn't know me. I missed that about going to church. It was, it was a strange experience. I, was, I, I, I missed the fact that it seemed like everybody around me was having their time of their lives and it felt like nobody was struggling with loneliness like I was. And I asked myself, if Christ is all I need, why do I still feel like this? Even a perfect man, Adam, in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, with a perfect relationship with God, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now maybe, maybe you could argue that after the cross, now we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we should be spiritually independent, we should be better than Adam. You might argue that, but it was still, remember, the Apostle Paul, the most Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled man who ever lived, who at the end of his life wrote a letter to his friend Timothy, and he said, Timothy, please come and see me, because everyone has deserted me. Now he said, Christ is with me, but everybody else has deserted me. Timothy, oh Timothy, please come. There's a second truth in the first chapters of Genesis that I want want you to see in order to give you a biblical perspective on loneliness. The, The first one is that human beings were not created to be solitary. The second one is this, sin makes loneliness worse. Sin makes loneliness 
worse. Uh, You know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve live in this garden, this perfect place. God gave them one command, uh, and they violated the command. They ate from the tree that they were not to eat from. Uh, And verses 7 and 8 describe their response of chapter 3. Genesis 3, 7 and 8 describe their response. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, One cynic wrote that Adam and Eve, after they had disobeyed God, sewed together fig leaves for themselves, and then Eve tried on a maple, an oak, and a poplar just to see how they fit. (laughs) Verse 8, look what it says. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see what happens after sin here? Even in a perfect man, in a perfect place, with a perfect relationship with God, it's not good for him to be alone. And now that sin has been introduced, you see what it brings with it. It brings shame, it brings hiding, it brings blame, anger. In chapters 4 and 5, it brings jealousy, it brings murder, on top of, of, of Adam's createdness as a creature, um, now there are all these sinful attitudes that drive people further apart. Everything is worse now. This raises the possibility for everyone here that some of your loneliness is a consequence of your own choices. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but it, Scripture demands we must. Uh, I can illustrate this easily. My mother used to take us to visit my great-grandmother. I was very young. All I remember about my great-grandmother's house was her toys that she used to keep in an old Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket. (laughs) And my sister and I would go and we'd play with the toys and my mom would visit my great-grandmother. And great-grandma Chasey, the whole time my mother was there, would do nothing but complain to my mother about how no one ever came and visited her. This is, this is how she dealt with her loneliness, by complaining uh, that she was all alone. Uh, this is not the way to encourage visitors. <laughs> if you're committed to bitterness and you're committed to complaining, you will be a lonely person. Sin makes loneliness worse. Uh, maybe you're lonely because of your pride. Are you so, so embarrassed about something? about you, if people knew something about you, that they, that they would reject you? I imagine that if I'd spoken to someone in college about being lonely, uh, that I might not have been so alone, because I'm sure I was not the only one of those thousands of students there. I was trying to fake it like everybody else. didn't work very well. Uh, Jane Clark wrote about her poisonous efforts to end her loneliness. Uh, she tried two different things. She won, on the one hand, she tried to manipulate people into getting them to like her so she would do things that, that she knew that they wanted so they would be her friend. At the same time, though, she was afraid of their rejection, rejection so she'd hide from them. She had a, a twofer going on. It didn't work very well. Trying to control them and trying to hide from them. Maybe you're trying to, to cure your loneliness by throwing off restraint. This is a one common solution. Go have a good time. Sleep with as many people as you possibly can. Drink as much as you can on the weekend to deal with, with the stress of the week. You just need to cut loose. 
You just need to lower your standards and have a good time, and that will deal with your loneliness. Is what you're trying to do to, to deal with your loneliness working? Is it successful for you? Isn't there a better way to deal with loneliness? Let's move on here. I want to talk to you about a biblical response to loneliness. I want to identify three things that you need to respond to loneliness well. Uh, We've talked about where loneliness comes from. Now I want you to talk to you about how to respond to loneliness. What do you need? First, you need a strong theology of suffering. You need a strong theology of suffering. Does that surprise you that I would start there? Well, let's break the the sentence down, shall we? Theology. You're all theologians, whether you have a degree or not. You have an idea. You have an idea about God in in your mind about what role suffering is to play in your life. And you have an understanding of what God does in someone's life through suffering and what suffering is about. I wonder if your theology of suffering is helping you or hurting you in your battle with loneliness. In a chapter of her her fine book called Real Sex, Lauren Winner writes about the lies that the church tells us about sex. The church, Christians are not trying to be deceptive, but here we say things that are just not true. Here are some things that we, one thing that we say that's just not true. If you engage in extramarital sex, you will feel guilty. We say that. You will wake up the morning after feeling terrible. You'll mess up your life. You'll be plagued with problems. You will have horrible memories and you'll feel guilty and instantly regret what you have done. The reason that that is a lie is because, as even the Bible admits, sin is pleasurable. If sin wasn't any fun, no one would do it. It it feels good. It provides at least some sense of pleasure. The truth of the matter is, when you don't do things God's way, there are consequences, terrible consequences, whether you feel them or experience them immediately or not. That's the the lie part, that you'll instantly have troubles. There's a flip side. There's a flip side of that lie, another lie that the, the church tells more closely related to suffering, This is the lie. If you pursue sexual purity, you'll feel great immediately. Just like disobedience doesn't have immediate negative consequences, obedience does not always have immediate rewards. Sometimes obedience results in suffering. So we have the assumption that God wants us to be happy and fulfilled and he wants me to be happy and fulfilled on my time schedule in the ways that I want to be happy and I want to be fulfilled. I want that to be true. Uh, I want it to be true that faithfulness to Christ will result in immediate rewards and uh, absence of suffering, but that is not the way it works. Loneliness is a form of suffering. I'm going to talk in, in a minute about ways to combat that form of suffering, but let's be honest, sometimes loneliness is a companion of singleness. Do you have a theology of suffering that is strong enough to sustain you through loneliness? Loneliness is a particular part of suffering. Uh, it's part of sexual faithfulness. It's part of single-minded fidelity to Christ. Every choice that you make in life involves suffering. Every choice that you make in life to follow Christ faithfully enjoys suffering. 
And loneliness is the suffering of sexual fidelity, chaste fidelity to Christ. When you experience loneliness, like when you experience any suffering, Christ calls you to remember that God does significant work through suffering. This has got to be at the center of your understanding of suffering. God does great work through suffering. When you experience loneliness as a single adult, it is an opportunity for God to do good work in your life. Hard work, but good work. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, Most of the world's great souls have been lonely people. Because suffering is when God meets with you. Did you notice in, in the reading that I did from 1 Timothy this morning how many times Paul talked about suffering in, in, in that, that, that book? He used the word persevere. Persevere in these things, Timothy. You don't need to persevere in easy things. Nobody calls you when you're on vacation and says, keep up the good work, doing nothing. You've got to persevere in doing nothing. Nobody has to persevere in doing nothing. It's easy to do nothing. You have to persevere in hard things. You have to persevere in suffering. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, if you really want from the overflow of your life to have a significant impact on other people, you have got to persevere in suffering. God does good work in suffering. God does good work in loneliness. Let me give you another illustration of this. Sometimes the Bible calls us to choose suffering for its benefits. You know that? Uh, every year for the past several years, we have devoted a month in our church to fasting. One day a week uh, uh, for a month. It, it's about time that we do it again. We haven't done it in a, in a while. Fasting is voluntary suffering that the Bible calls us to. When I fast, I get grumpy toward the end of the day. Uh, it's because I'm hungry and my head usually hurts. I'm distracted and I'm tired and that voluntary suffering is meant to wean me from the comfort that I think I need food to provide for me. Because if something happens bad in the morning, I think, well, there's always the hot dog I'm going to have for lunch. At least I'll be happy then. And if something bad happens in the afternoon, at least for dessert, I'm going to have a nice piece of pie. And fasting is meant to wean me from thinking that that food provides the comfort that I think I need. It hammers into my soul the truth that man does not live by bread alone. And the suffering of loneliness, the suffering of chastity, is one of God's good tools for pounding in your soul that man does not live by companionship, man does not live by having a girlfriend alone. Loneliness is a form of suffering and God does good work in and through suffering. You need a strong theology of suffering to deal with loneliness. That's the first thing. The the second is this. You need a realistic view of marriage. You need a realistic view of marriage. Marriage Marriage is a good thing. It's one of God's good gifts to us. But you cannot take a good thing like marriage and make it an ultimate thing. Marriage is one of God's good gifts limited completely to life in this world. When you get married, you vow to remain faithful until death parts you and not a moment more. After death, 
Your marriage is over. Jesus was once asked the question about marriage in heaven. Do you remember this? Somebody came, the Sadducees came and asked him a a silly question about uh, the resurrection and, and marriage. And Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures, do you? See, Jesus said, in heaven people are neither married nor are they given in marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. Actually, there is a marriage in heaven, but it won't be between you and your spouse. It will be between the body of Christ and her husband, Christ himself. I don't know what your relationship with, will be like with your spouse when you're going to be in heaven. Don't promise them that you'll love them forever. It's a promise you can't make. Uh, will you be neighbors with your spouse in heaven? I don't know. What, uh, when you get to heaven, do you, do you have it in mind that your husband is at the gate waiting for you? I wouldn't have that hope. Uh, Tim Keller, was, I was listening to him speak this week about marriage and heaven. And one of the things he said was, you know, the Bible isn't very specific about what our relationship is going to be like. It says there's no marriage. He said one of the things that I think is that in this life, um, the, the, the level of commitment that is called for in marriage, the level of love is so significant and so deep that you in this life, in this broken world as a human being, can only have, share that type of love with one other person. He said, but in heaven, I think that we are going to be perfected to the extent that we will be able to love deeply all those who are there. Your marriage is restricted. It's limited to life alone. I've heard preachers suggest that that they're going to stand before God together with their spouse for judgment. No. I've heard preachers suggest that your relationship will have some sort of manifestation forever. Not according to Scripture. Marriage is a good gift. It's a great gift, but it is not ultimate in any sense of the word. Marriage is not the supreme example of Christian living. It will not be the answer to all of your problems and all of your struggles. It will not fulfill all of your desires. Your marriage will not be perfect. Every life has its own particular struggles and challenges. Marriage among it, among the, those lights. We're, we're pro-marriage in our church. We love marriage, but we're much more pro-eternity. We're much more pro-gospel. Sometimes loneliness is created when we infuse marriage with a meaning that it was never meant to bear. Here's a third part of a response to loneliness. You need a full appreciation for the church. You need a full appreciation for the church. You respond to loneliness as a single adult by recognizing the smallness of marriage and the bigness of the church. There's a dramatic change that takes place in the Bible. In the Old Testament, your family, your blood relatives, was the center of your life. You became part of God's people, first of all, by being born a descendant of Abraham. And you traced your lineage back to that one man. Your life in the Old Testament as part of God's people was organized around your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your grandparents. In the New Testament, though, things change. The currency of life is no longer blood in the New Testament, but your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, Who are my mother? Who are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters? My mother, my brothers, my sisters are the ones who do God's will. Jesus radically reinterpreted family relationships. Uh, in the New Testament, 
the Bible, in the Bible, the family is a basic unit of society. That's true. It produces little children. But in the New Testament, the family is actually a pointer to ultimate reality. It points to relationships that will last forever. The family is not ultimate. The church is ultimate. The family is not the chief community of grace. The church is the community of the everlasting grace of God. Marriage will not last forever. Parenting will not last forever. But when you meet with the church on Sunday morning, when you break bread, when you drink the juice, you are eating and drinking with God's forever people. This ring that I wear on my, my finger, I'm very happy of for, I'm very proud of it. I, I'm a very happy husband. But this is a symbol that will, of, of a covenant that will last at best 50 more years, 60 more years. When you pick up the hymn book, and you read that covenant on that first page, you're reading about a relationship that will last forever. What makes this transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament possible is the work of Christ. Uh, When the world is defined solely by bloodline, when we think only about family, walls develop. And you can divide the world into categories if you do it by family, right? Jews, Gentiles, or by races. Africans, Caucasians, Asians. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 that there was a wall separating Jews and Gentiles And that wall was reinforced by all the behaviors that foster loneliness, judgmentalism and pride and suspicion and bitterness. The Bible says that Christ tore down the wall. He did it by dying on the cross. He took the main thing that separated us from God and from one another, our sin, and He triumphed over that sin. He bore sin's penalty in His body and He rose again. And now the primary indicator of your identity is not your family, but whether or not you have trusted Christ as your Savior. That is the most important thing about you. And if you're in Christ, you are more closely related to those in Christ than in your own family. DNA does not last forever. The Gospel does. So, so do you function in the church that way? Is that how you live? In light of what's, what's of ultimate importance? I'm not commanding you to neglect your family. But I want you to recognize, I want you to think differently about the people that are in this room and that are part of the church. This is another point in our life together as a church where I press you about your participation in the body, your relationship with those who name the name of Christ. It's evidence of whether the gospel has really changed you or not. Do you want to be a part of a church where it's really true that you are closely related to those who are followers of Christ and where you live that out? That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I want you to think differently about the people that you see. If they're in Christ, you'll be with them forever. Forever. They're to be the objects of your love and your hospitality and your generosity and your concern. Paul uh, Paul says to Timothy, Treat the older men as fathers, the older women as mothers, the younger men as brothers, the younger women as sisters with all purity. Thinking more highly about the church and investing your life in it will not erase loneliness completely. But it's the context into which God has called you. It is His plan A for doing battle with the monster of being alone. 
And my plea for you is that you would honor Christ by considering the brothers and the sisters that He Himself has given you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank You for Your Word that is true. It, it challenges us and stretches us. Father, You know our hearts very well. They're deceitful and desperately wicked. You understand. You judge. You know the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Father, you know what attitudes reside within me and what attitudes reside within these men and women that are dividing us. And we come as we finish this morning to you this morning asking you to do good work in us. We are in need of repentance Uh, for the judgmentalism or the hypocrisy or the pride or the bitterness that divides us from one another. We are in need of uh, mercy for the impatience that causes us to dismiss one another uh, easily. We're in need of, of, of great grace. If we're to do what you say, we can't do it by ourselves. So we come before you asking you for help. We're your children, you're our father. We're not asking for we're asking for bread and we trust that you won't give us stones. Would you do a miraculous work in our church, Father, that that it would be really true of us what Jesus said that that people will know we're followers of Christ by our love? I pray too that you would give us eyes to see those men and women around us who might be battling with this loneliness. Uh, would, would you work in our lives that we would invite them in for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.